Well, I heard this week about a teacher and a student of hers that both had a great challenge. This is how the student described what happened. My teacher asked me for my favorite animal, and I said fried chicken. She sent me to the office to tell the principal, and when I did, he laughed and said, don't do that again. The next day, she asked the class what our favorite live animal is. And I said, chicken. And she said, why? And I said, because you can make it into fried chicken. (laughs) And I got sent to the principal's office and was told to tell him what I said. And when I did, he laughed and said, don't let it happen again. On the third day, my teacher asked us, who is our favorite famous person? And I said, Colonel Sanders. And you can guess where I am at the moment. (laughs) The teacher had a challenge and the student had a challenge. And do you know what my biggest challenge is? Do you know what my biggest challenge is personally? That's easy. It's me. My biggest challenge is me. Because I want to live in my flesh. I want to depend on myself. I'm not naturally going to let the Holy Spirit of God who lives inside of me to control me. So my biggest challenge is me. And maybe you all can relate to that as my brothers and sisters. I hope that you'll recall that sanctification is defined as God's work of setting believers apart for his own possession and use. Sanctification is God's work of setting you as a believer apart for his possession and use. And further, I hope that you'll remember that we've taught you that there are three stages to this sanctification work of God. First of all, at salvation, sanctification is positional. 1 Corinthians 1-2 is an example. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Saints by calling. So there is a sense in which God's work of setting you apart as a believer in his son for his possession and his use is positionally complete. You have been sanctified in a sense. But there's another dimension to sanctification, not just at salvation, but after salvation. This is experiential or progressive sanctification. John 17, 17, in Jesus Christ's high priestly prayer for us before the cross, he said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's a process. That's why we study the Bible individually. That's why we study the Bible in our nuclear family units. That's why we study the Bible in the incredible body of Christ, because we are progressively, experientially, sanctified as we give proper attention to the scriptures, as we memorize them, as we study them, as we let them arbitrate in our decisions and our speech and our actions. And so there's a sense in which sanctification is completed positionally at conversion. But there's an equal sense that sanctification is not yet done, that we are experiencing more sanctification, hopefully, with time. It's progressive. It's underway. 
And last stage of sanctification is the ultimate completion of sanctification, which is glorification. When we see Christ face-to-face, either through physical death or through rapture, then sanctification is perfected, completed. This is the ultimate stage of sanctification. This is what God is working to do for you if you are born again, and he won't fail. He will present you one day before himself spotless and without reproach. And so sanctification, God's work of setting a believer apart for his own possession and use, has a positional completed sense, an experiential not yet completed sense, and an ultimate glorification one day sense. Now, we're going to be in Romans 7, 1 to 6, but I'd like you to turn to that neighborhood, but stay in a little different street. Go to Romans 6, verse 14. We have preached this previously, but just by way of a very, very quick review, Romans 6, verse 14. That summary verse on the passage about being united with Christ and what it means for sanctification, Romans 6, 13, 14, excuse me, says, For sin, singular, the law of sin and death, for sin shall not be master over you. Why? For you are not under law, but under grace. This verse essentially is saying to us, Christian, sin shall not be master over you. Sin does not have to be your boss. The law of sin and death, the principle that pulls you down into sinning, doesn't have to be your boss. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. You and I are not any longer under law's authority anymore. Instead, we are under God's amazing grace and under God's authority. And this is marvelous. Now watch this. Since we live under grace... Since we live under grace, the law of sin and death should not be our master anymore. But can I tell you something? My little secret. Even though I'm under God's grace and its authority, sometimes sin masters your pastor. Don't look at me that way. It's true for each of us, right? Even though we have been delivered from having to be in bondage to the law of sin and death, sometimes we re-engage ourselves with the law of sin and death and we sin. We're not sinlessly perfect. That awaits glorification. This morning, in God's word, we're going to see that the beloved Apostle Paul, the inspired human author of 60% of the New Testament was in the same boat as us. Back then, his flesh wanted to capitulate, to re-engage with the law of sin and death. And back then, the great apostle Paul sinned. And we today are in the same boat of struggle against sin that Paul was back then. The apostle Paul regularly battled and fought off the law of sin and death's downward pull on him after his conversion, subsequent to being saved, after his road to Damascus experience. 
And I've said to you before that those who contend that Romans chapter 7 somehow reverts out of chronological order to be describing Paul's struggle with sin before he was saved, I throw that out the window. I don't believe that for a minute. Romans chapter 7 for the Apostle Paul was a window of transparency to the readers of the inspired scriptures that he struggled with sin, just like we do. And now by way of preview in Romans chapter 7, we're going to see three things, a a sermon for each. Three things we're going to see in Romans 7. First, a fact. We're going to see that today. Second, a shame. And third, a hope. Say that with me. A fact, a shame, a hope. Say it again. A fact, a shame, and a hope. Today, in verses 1 to 6 of Romans 7, we're only going to look at the fact of sanctification. God willing, on September 27th in the morning, we're going to look at the shame of sanctification, verses 7 to 24, and God willing, the evening sermon of September 27th will be the last part, the hope, verses 24 and 25. But today, just the fact. Let's start with the facts. That's always a good thing to do in your Christian life, by the way, to let the facts of the scriptures be the engine on your train and your feelings to be the caboose. We get in trouble when we make our feelings the engine of the train. Don't do that. The facts are the engine of your train, and your feelings are the caboose. What does that mean? I don't feel love for my spouse anymore. I really don't care about your feelings. The fact is you're married. You made a covenant before God and witnesses. Until death you depart. Live on the fact, and your feelings will catch up. But if you let your feelings be the engine of your train, you're in a world of trouble. Because when that person at work says, oh, you really should divorce him. If you're working on your feelings, you're in deep weeds and you'll disobey God. But if you let the facts of Scripture inform how you view your marriage, your feelings will come in line. That's how it works. So we're going to start in chapter 7 today with the sermon on the fact of sanctification, the fact. And the fact of sanctification is found in Romans 7, 1 to 6. The big idea of this sermon this morning is this. Believers are disengaged from the law. Believers are disengaged from the law. That's the big idea. Believers are disengaged from the law. I'm going to read verses 1 to 6 of Romans 7. Follow in your Bibles, please. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, 
having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. So did you hear it? We have been disengaged from the law. You and I as born-again Christians have died to the law by being justified with Christ in his death. Remember, this is Christ, this is you. The moment you trusted Jesus for salvation, the Holy Spirit baptized you into Christ so that everything that happened to Jesus has happened to you. Jesus was crucified, the old you was crucified to the law and to yourself. Jesus was buried, the old you was buried. Jesus was raised to newness of life. You've been raised to newness of life. Christ's life is your life. We have been disengaged from the law as believers, and we have died to the law by being identified with Christ in his death. And that ought to be a big relief. A big relief. We don't have to perform in order to be kept on the payroll of heaven. Do-it-yourself righteousness is no longer our driving principle or our way of living. (laughs) When I waited tables in Dallas, Texas during seminary with Beth at the same restaurant, the thing that you dreaded most was when you sat a young family with a child in a high chair. That I didn't dread. But when I saw they had a totally hands-off approach to that child in that high chair, (laughs) you couldn't pay me enough tip to want to do that. Pablum everywhere mashed potatoes on the floor, spilled drinks. They let a child do do-it-yourself eating when the child wasn't prepared or able to do do-it-herself eating. The Christian life that we do by ourselves, do-it-yourself Christianity, is equally messy. And God never intended any of us to live do-it-yourself Christian lives. And so because we've been disengaged from the law, And born-again believers, we've died to the law by being identified with Christ in his death. We have relief. We don't have to perform in order to be kept on the payroll of heaven. We don't have to perform in order to be loved by God. And do-it-yourself righteousness, thankfully, is no longer our driving principle. And we've stepped away from being religious. When someone says, are you religious? I say, not at all. God delivered me from being religious. I'm not working my way to God's approval. God has come to me in Christ and said, you can be approved through Jesus. I'm not religious. If you're here this morning and you think that doing something good is going to gain you heaven, you're wrong. It's not by deeds of righteousness, which we have done, that we're saved. In fact, Isaiah says our own deeds of righteousness are like filthy rags to God. The way a person is made right with God is to say, I can't be right with you except you do it. The way a person is made right with God is to say, I can't cover my own sins by good efforts and good works. I have to have the blood of Christ cover my sins. We are not religious people. We are people in a saving, growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, let me point out a little more here in verses 1 to 6. Four things. I want to show you four things in verses 1 to 6 very quickly. A principle, an illustration, an application, and an explanation. In these first six verses of chapter 7, there's a principle, there is an illustration, there is an application, 
and there is an explanation. Let's get after it. Verses 1 to 6 again. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she is, she is to be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who, has, who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now, a great word is but as a contrastive in all of Scripture, something brand new, 180 degree turn. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. So what's the principle? It's in verse 1. Here's the principle. The principle is that the dead are freed from the law. The dead are freed from the law. It's not not what verse 1 says. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? The dead are freed from the law. I want you to imagine this, that a driver is speeding recklessly westbound on the JFK highway, and a police officer detects this, flashes the police car's lights to pull him over for a big dollar speeding ticket. The reckless motorist decides to try to outrun the police. He speeds up to an incredibly dangerous speed, and then at the last minute, The fleeing driver pulls off the road and totally loses control of his car. It rolls over several times and it bursts into flames. And the driver is killed. The policeman approaches the burning wreckage. He knows that the driver could not have possibly survived. And he pulls the body of the driver out of the burning car, and clearly the man is dead. This very sad fact means that the policeman doesn't go ahead and write up the speeding ticket and pin it to the dead man's clothes. The dead are freed from the law. This is the fact of the first six verses of Romans 7. And in reality, believers like us are freed from the law. We are, put another way, believers in reality are disengaged from the law. Again, to say it another way, the principle is that the law no longer has authority on the dead. It only has authority on the living. Now, what is Scripture's illustration? We say there's a principle. We just saw that the law only has jurisdiction over the dead. The second thing I wanted you to see was an illustration. And the illustration in this passage is in verses 2 and 3, and it's marriage. 
For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. So the illustration of this is marriage. And the law of marriage, which is monogamy, one man, one woman, for life, heterosexual, I have to say that now, it's so unbelievable, heterosexual, a man with a woman, is God's law for marriage. But God's law for marriage and its monogamy applies only so long as both the spouses are living. But if one of the spouses dies, here in the text, the husband in the illustration, then the other spouse is totally free to remarry. And so a widower or a widow are free to remarry. The law of marriage does no longer apply to them because their first mate died. And again, the fact, to review the fact of these verses, is that God is using the reality of our co-crucifixions with Christ. And the fact of that is that we are disengaged from the law. Now let's take up the application the application of this great fact for you and me to see that verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. Clearly, this verse is addressing my brethren. That means these are born-again Christians. These are not fringe people. These are not fakers. These are real Christians. My brethren... Believers in Jesus Christ, born-again Christians, then we notice that we are told we were made to die. We didn't volunteer. We didn't say, I guess I'll die. When we trusted Christ, we're joined to him. We were joined to him. We were made to die because we are co-crucified with Christ. We may not live like we're co-crucified with Christ, but if we're saved, the actual truth is we are co-crucified with Christ, and it's time to live like it. And so, we're made to die implies we've already been executed with the law. And last time, we said there were no survivors of crosses and there were no suicides on crosses. You were made to die when a Roman soldier nailed you to a tree. And through our union with Christ and through our identification with Christ in death by crucifixion, going back to 6, 2, and 3, May it never be, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death? If you're a Christian, you've been spirit baptized into Christ. You've been joined to him both in his death and resurrection. By the way, if you're a born-again Christian and you've never been water baptized, you're disobedient. Water baptism is a visual expression of an already completed spiritual reality. We're commanded to baptize, so that means we're commanded to ask for water baptism. 
And so we need to remember that this reality that we have died to sin is a separation reality. It's not a cessation reality. When we say we've died to sin, it doesn't mean that we're incapable of responding to the law of sin and death. What it does mean that the Spirit of God putting us into Christ separates us from the law of sin and death, and we don't have to respond to it. Sometimes we do. Paul did too, chapter 7. So the death we're talking about here is a separation and not a cessation. So stay with me. That we have died to sin means that we have separation from sin's rulership in our lives. That we have died to sin means that uh, we have victory over sin. We aren't compelled to sin. We can choose to sin, lousy choice, but we're not compelled to sin. When the law of sin and death says jump, we don't have to say, how high? We can say, get lost. The Spirit of God lives in me. I'm not doing your bidding anymore. I don't have to sin. I don't want to sin. And so what are the happy results of dying to the law? What are the life-changing results of being separated from the law? There are two. Result number one, we are joined to Christ in his righteousness. We are joined to Christ in his righteousness. Chapter 6, 4, and 5, quickly. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. So the great result, the first great result, the life-changing result of being disengaged from the law is that we have been joined to Christ in his righteousness. Second result, we can and will produce godly fruit. Before you were a Christian, you could not produce godly fruit because it came from an impure heart. But now that we are separated from the law by virtue of our co-crucifixion with Christ, the happy result is we can produce godly fruit, and actually we will produce godly fruit as we walk controlled by the Holy Spirit moment to moment. Back to chapter 7, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ that you might be joined together to him who was raised from the dead, that result, purpose, we might bear fruit for God. You've been saved to bear fruit. You have been redeemed to be fruitful. Are you? Does the person who works beside you at your workplace see godly fruit in your attitudes, your words, your work habits? Do the children in your home see godly fruit as you interact with them? We have been co-crucified with Christ and disengaged from the law of sin and death so that we can produce godly fruit. And so now we're to the application. The bottom line application of this verse, these verses rather, in 1 to 6, is this. We are dead to, freed from the law. We are dead to the law and we are freed from the law. Again, verse 7, 4. Therefore, my brethren, 
You also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. And so far we've seen, just to recap, we've seen a principle that the dead are free from the law. We've seen an illustration, marriage. We've seen an application that we are dead to and freed from the law. And now the last thing is an explanation. An explanation, verses 5 and 6. Chapter 7, for while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. So here's the explanation. The law triggers sins. The law triggers sins. Have you ever noticed how rules kind of encourage the breaking of themselves? If the speed limit is 30, then we do 40. If the speed limit is 40, then we do 50. If the speed limit is 50, then we do 60. Rules foster Rule breaking. I love this illustration. The flagship hotel in Galveston, Texas, is built right next to the water. Large plate glass windows adorn the dining room, which is at the lowest floor. However, the windows kept getting broken by guests fishing from the balconies with heavy sinkers. They used to cast from their rooms into the water But the lines were often too short, and so the crash against the window with the sinker broke the window pane. So here's what they had to put up. Finally, management removed the no fishing from balcony signs. There were no fishing from balcony signs, so they fished from balconies, and they thought they'd solve the problem, take the sign down. That's amazing. And the windows haven't been broken since they took down the signs. No fishing from balconies. (laughs) Now watch this. Since the law triggers sinning, therefore to choose to live under the law is to choose to get beat up by the law of sin and death. Did you hear that? Since the law triggers sinning, therefore to choose to live under the law is to choose to get beat up by the law of sin and death. 725, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. And then skipping down to verse two of chapter eight, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. But we can tie ourselves in to the law of sin and death if we choose to live under the law as to earn a performance-based acceptance with God. But you say, Pastor Rob, uh, this is all theory for me because I, I would never choose to live under the law. Uh, maybe you don't, but most likely you do from time to time, from situation to situation. For, for example, when you apply the Old Testament Saturday Sabbath law to your Sundays, when you conclude, even privately, that God will love you more if you try harder to please him. 
when you compare what you're doing in the church, your spiritual performance to someone else, either to make yourself proud or to make you feel guilty. When you have your own little list of sins that are worse than any other sins to you, when you have a nagging private doubt that you or someone else can lose salvation for a poor spiritual job performance, when we do any of those things, we choose to live under the law, we re-engage with the law, and we're bound to have fruits less than the quality God would have us to have. Now, before wrapping up this message, by way of a review, I want to give you some priceless nuggets from Galatians. So hold your places in Romans and go back further into the New Testament, please, to Galatians. Galatians was a very intense book written to battle legalism, written to battle the concept that believers had to be circumcised and keep the Jewish dietary Old Testament laws in order to be truly saved. And Paul with vehemence, Paul with emphasis, Paul with urgency, argued against to say that salvation is by grace through faith plus nothing. And he said at the end of Galatians, look with what large letters I write in my own hand. You know why? Because he had a secretary that carefully wrote down the inspired word of God for all his other books, and he just told the secretary what God told him to write. But in this letter, he was so incensed and so concerned and so burdened that people were adding to grace and faith in Christ that he grabbed the quill at the end of the letter, and because his eyes were still not totally healed from the road to Damascus, that's my conclusion, he said, see with what large letters I I write in my own hand. He wanted them to know what I want you to know. That salvation is by grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus, plus nothing. Plus nothing. And so Galatians 2, 16, listen. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even though we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. That's pretty clear. Verse 21, same chapter. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. That's pretty clear. Galatians 3.11, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. That's also clear. Verse 24 of chapter 3, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. That's clear. Chapter 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to, to a yoke of slavery. That's clear. It's very clear. And the fact is that believers in Jesus are disengaged from the law. Therefore, do not re-engage yourself to the law. That would be a shame. That would be a recipe for frustration. That would be a sad thing of a large proportion. Instead, 
be engaged with Christ. Be engaged with Christ and with his Holy Spirit who lives within you and with his righteousness. So don't yield to the law of sin and death. Instead, yield to the Spirit of God who resides inside of you. Don't yield to the law of sin and death. Instead, yield gladly to the Spirit of God who resides inside of you. Again, our verses of today. Romans 7, 1 to 6. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she, is, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is freed, free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have received, sorry, we have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Dear God, how grateful we are for your words, clarity, practicality, as to our identity with you. Lord, I pray that we would engage ourselves with Jesus Christ in a conscious way, that we might be about the righteous deeds that he has for us to do, that we're prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them before we even were born. I pray for this incredible body of Christ, Lord, that we would not be legalistic, that we would understand that the beauty and the marvel and the mystery of salvation is it's not based on anything we could ever do, but it's based on your grace and your mercy and the finished work of Christ. Lord, if we accept grace is the way to be saved, may we also accept that grace is the way to be sanctified. And grace is the way to be glorified. Lord, I thank you for the old hymn that it has, it has it right. Free from the law, oh happy condition. Jesus hath bled and there is remission. Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, Christ hath redeemed us once for all. Children of man, oh glorious calling, surely his grace will keep us from falling. Passing from death to life at his call, blessed salvation once for all. Once for all, O sinner, receive it. Once for all, O doubter, believe it. Cling to the cross, the burden will fall. Christ hath redeemed us once for all. Lord, thank you. Thank you that Romans 10.4 has it. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes.
Thank you, Lord. Amen. Wipe away every stain 
God, I 